Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, we are embarking on a new course. Today, we'll be introducing a course on Homer's Iliad and discussing book one of his poem. All right, so I am not really interested in the authorship question, which is to say whether or not Homer is multiple individuals or one person. But we can begin here. When Thucydides, Plato, Xenophon, and Aristotle refer to Homer, they speak about him as one individual who composed multiple full poems. They speak of Homer as the educator of Greece, the man who helped forge the disparate Greek cities into the Hellenes, into a people. He's also spoken of as a thinker in his own right, sometimes as the articulator of a kind of Heraclitean philosophical position. It is also wondered whether or not Homer is simply wise or knows the best way to live a human life. Our plan is thus to approach Homer as an individual author and his text as an aesthetic whole that is complete and ordered in a carefully planned way. We will tr treat Homer as wiser than ourselves and as a man who has infinitely more to teach us than we have to teach him. When I originally put together the idea for this course, I thought that I could teach what I wanted to call an advanced course on Homer's Iliad, which is to say, I had read the poem a number of times in the past and thought that I could offer a reasonably coherent interpretation of the book as a whole. Upon reading the poem again uh, quite recently, I was astonished at how many things I could see this time, and therefore how many things I could not see in the past. So, Instead of offering a course that claims to have an advanced understanding of Homer's wisdom, I am compelled to offer a more exploratory introductory course. In what follows, I will devote one lecture to each of the 24 books of the Iliad. Half of these books will be free, or half of the lectures on these books will be free on the Substack, and half of them will be behind a paywall. The even numbers books will be free, the or sorry, the odd numbered will be free, the even will be uh behind the paywall. Additionally, I will offer a few lectures that we might call uh, different theoretical ways to approach Homer. That is, uh, for instance, I will offer a lecture on a Nietzschean approach to Homer, where we'll look at Nietzsche's essay, Homer's Contest, and a few key passages from The Birth of Tragedy. Additionally, we'll look at some Platonic readings, um, some Straussian thinkers like Bernardetti or Annersdorf, who uh, try to suggest that Homer's wisdom is ultimately compatible with or in agreement with Platonic wisdom. Um, and in addition, we'll look to what we might call a poetic pathway into the text, uh, Louise Cowan's essay called Epic is Cosmopoesis. Other essays might recommend themselves, and you might recommend essays to me. But at, from time to time, we will look at other theoretical approaches to Homer and try to see what it is that we can learn from them. I, I could say for myself that I am not settled on how to approach Homer. So I'll be taking cues from each of these theoretical approaches as I try to come to understand Homer's final position on the great questions of human life and how we can embody his wisdom as we take action or contemplate his wisdom in our own lives. Which, which is to say, I mean, Homer might have his own position that is somehow different from Plato, Nietzsche, or some kind of like poetic position that Louise Cowan presents. I'm not entirely sure. That's so we can think about this class together. And I, 
this is something I really look forward to is hearing your disagreements or elaborations or extensions of my own thoughts um, or downright refutations. Those would be quite welcome as well. Okay, so we won't say almost anything at all about our present moment. I do that more in other courses. This will be mostly about Homer. But we could say, do we find ourselves in a moment in which Americans have deeper disagreements with each other about what counts as a morally admirable action than perhaps ever before? I will allow you to think of the examples on your own, but I think there are plenty. We are thus more fragmented and less unified than ever before as a people. Perhaps this gives us some insight into what living in a polytheistic world looks like. To please one god inevitably angers another. There's a lot more to say about that, and we'll occasionally bring Homer to the contemporary moment, but I don't want to do too much of that right now. Um, so let's turn to the text itself of book one. Okay, so with all this said, let's turn to the beginning of Homer's poem. I suppose a note <clears throat> should be mentioned on translation. The translation I am the most familiar with is the Richmond Lattimore translation of Iliad from the University of Chicago. You can find a nice version of that online for free in addition to uh, looking at the Greek that he is translating. Many of my friends who I think know Homer better than I do have recommended the Caroline Alexander translation. I, in this particular reading, will be uh, looking at the Robert Fagel's translation partially because of its ubiquity. I mean, every there's so many people who have this translation. Um, and partially because I was curious about investigating myself, um, which isn't to say that I won't look at the Greek or look to other translations. But if I'm reading you a passage right now, it will be from the Robert Fagel's translation. So perhaps I will read the first 23 lines of book one out loud and then comment on them. So here is the Robert Fagel's translation of the first 23 lines. He says, <clears throat> Rage, goddess, sing the rage of Peleus' son Achilles, murderous, doomed, that cost the Achaeans countless losses, hurling down to the house of death so many sturdy souls, great fighter souls, but made their bodies carrion. Feasts for the dogs and birds, and the will of Zeus was moving toward its end. Begin, muse, when the two first broke and clashed, Agamemnon, lord of men, and brilliant Achilles. What god drove them to fight with such fury? Apollo, the son of Zeus and Leto, incensed at the king. He swept a fatal plague through the army. Men were dying, and all because Agamemnon spurned Apollo's priest. Yes, Chryses approached the Achaeans' fast ships to win his daughter back, bringing a priceless ransom and bearing high in hand, wound on a, wound on a golden staff, the wreaths of the god, the distant deadly archer. He begged the whole Achaean army, but most of all, the two supreme commanders, Atreus's two sons, Agamemnon, Menelaus, all Argives geared for war. May the gods who hold the halls of Olympus give you Priam's city to plunder, then safe passage home. Just set my daughter free, my dear one. Here, accept these gifts, this ransom. Honor the god who strikes from worlds away, the son of Zeus, Apollo. So those are 
or rather, that's the way that the poem begins. It's a beautiful way to begin, and you know, it might be good to memorize uh, the beginning of the poem. Um, but let's say this: the poem begins in the middle of things, as the Latinists say, "en mediate res." If you're reading the book for the first time, if you've never opened the Iliad before, if those are the only lines that you have heard, then you don't actually know what causes the conflict between the Achaeans and the Trojans. Homer decides not to tell you that right away, so he begins with a kind of fog of war or decides to conceal what is the ostensible cause of the war, which is that the Trojan, Paris, who uh, lives in Ilion, steals Helen from the Spartan and Achaean Menelaus. Of course, this narrative uh, becomes extremely complicated over the course of the poem. We'll have much more occasion to talk about it later. But we could say that at various points, it seems like Helen steals Paris, or sorry, <laughs> that Paris steals Helen, rather. And at some points, it seems like Helen just leaves with Paris. And at some points, it feels like it's uh, Aphrodite's fault. Um, so as far as uh, moral responsibility and causality goes, this is kind of a perplexity that we'll have to examine as we go throughout the poem. Um, so let's propose a question that appears in the first line of the poem. Why do you think that Homer gives Achilles the epithet Peleus's or the epithet Peleus's son in the first line of the poem? Now, some people might say, "Well, there was metrical necessity. Uh, Homer had to use an epithet that had a certain amount of syllables so that it could fit well within the uh, metrical necessities that he imposed upon himself." But we have to suspect that at the beginning of the poem especially at the beginning of the poem, that Homer would have found a way to say what it is that he wanted to say, which is to say that Achilles receives several epithets throughout the poem. He's not called swift-footed Achilles here. He's called Peleus's son. So why is he called Peleus's son the first time that we see Achilles in the poem? Perhaps, um, and I stress perhaps because I'm not entirely sure about this, but we can say that perhaps it points to the Greeks not seeing themselves as we, modern, small-l liberals, see ourselves. Uh, we see ourselves as individuals. But it may be that the Greeks saw themselves not necessarily most of the time as individuals, but rather as parts that comprise wholes. Now, this is not to say that the Greeks, uh, their most impressive individuals, as we see in Homer, did not try to distinguish themselves um, and win glory that is undying. Certainly individuals did. But nevertheless, Homer stresses that Achilles is Peleus' son. He does not allow Achilles to come to light as an individual separate from Peleus as he begins. He says he, that he is Peleus' son. To constantly stress the parental origins of characters binds the family together such that, in a certain sense, what your father did redounds down to you. And what you do redounds, in a certain sense, both to the past and the present of your current family. You can probably see how this way of thinking has great benefits um, and also some great defects. I suppose the common trope that everybody might think of is that, oh, well, you know, that aristocrat's son is stupid, and so therefore aristocracy should be destroyed. It doesn't make any sense. But on the other hand, you know, you also know families in which they did not do so well for themselves. And so you imagine without even knowing who their children are, 
mm, you don't want your children playing with them. Which is to say that soft versions of what the Greeks thought about family life are still present even in our own lives, that we think, well, we, we try to understand ourselves as individuals and we try to understand the people we meet in our own lives as individuals, we can't help but spending a little bit of time thinking about like, who are their parents? You know, what are the parents' children like? And does, do the parents or the children say anything about um, the other group in a certain sense? So like, is there some sense in which there is some kind of like genetic or biological or epigenetic way that we can understand families. And so like, while liberals might say like, well, ultimately we still should understand people as individuals. Homer still orients us toward a position in which we ourselves still at least vaguely in a common sense way understand, which is to say that while generally speaking, we might be best off ultimately if we have enough time to, understanding and judging people as individuals, we can see why as a shorthand, or if we don't have enough time to think about somebody, we might look to their family, we might look to their friends, we might look to their acquaintances, when we think to ourselves, like, do we want to spend time with this person? Do we want our own to spend time with this person's own? And I think it's worth spending time on passages like this, where I want to spend as much time as I can on passages which seem the most alien to our own likely mode of thinking as modern people um, or as people who are in a certain sense small L liberals shaped by the regimes that we live in, we have a hard time understanding a more communal and or aristocratic morality. That's incredibly hard. Um, And so the Iliad presents a gigantic moral challenge or um, a great difficulty in understanding the moral cosmos within which the characters live in. And so it's important that Homer says that Achilles is Peleus' son. And a few more reasons we could add that this is important. Um, For one, Peleus is the source of Achilles' mortality, which is to say Achilles has an immortal mother, Thetis, but immortal father, Peleus. And so from Achilles' father, but not from his mother, and the father's the one who's mentioned, Achilles has inherited death. The other characters mentioned in the opening uh, 23 or so lines are Zeus, Apollo, and Agamemnon. We do not hear here about Zeus's heritage, although we hear about it elsewhere. We do not hear about Apollo's lineage, although we hear about it elsewhere. Or sorry, excuse me, we do hear about Apollo's lineage. We do hear about it. But maybe that makes Apollo seem that he is at a lower level than Zeus. And we can also note that Agamemnon's lineage is not mentioned in the opening lines. Um, And he is thus compared to Zeus in this way. Kings, at least at the outset or in their initial mentioning, do not have their lineage mentioned. By Agamemnon not having his lineage mentioned twice in these opening 23 lines, while he is mentioned twice, it forces us to think through, why is Achilles called Peleus' son? Why is Agamemnon not called Atreus' son in these first 23 lines? Or to take a step back for a second, why, because he is actually called Atreus in the first 23 lines, why the first two times Agamemnon's name is mentioned, is he not mentioned with his father, whereas he is mentioned with his father after that? 
All right, so whereas the Greeks might, at least in some cases, think of themselves as parts of wholes um, as opposed to individuals, we can continue our inquiry into like an entirely foreign moral way of thinking by saying this. We could say that one of the major themes to think about in the poem is rage. There are so many characters in this book who are angry. So many characters who are angry. Um, and so we might think about this. Um, a striking example of rage that is brought out in these opening lines is the rage that Achilles felt and that it cost the Achaeans countless lives. Countless lives. So we can ask this. What would Achilles have to think is true in order to justify the loss of countless lives on behalf of him. It seems that Achilles must believe that there is a radical inequality between individuals and even between families, so radical that we cannot make it quantitative. That's why the amount of lives that are lost are countless, which is to say that Achilles must think that there is a qualitative difference between him and others which is why it is so important that Homer says countless Achaeans or Greeks died. The specific number isn't important because the people who die are, by Achilles' self-understanding, qualitatively worse than he is. This is something that I think is incredibly hard for us to understand or to try to justify, justify like we egalitarian, uh, democratic-souled people. It sounds insane that countless people could die on behalf of one person, but I think uh, we ought to make our best effort to try to understand Homer and his heroes as they understand themselves, which is to say we have to try to understand why it would be okay and maybe even good for countless people to die on behalf of one person. It's possibly, or sorry, it's possible that we might ultimately disagree with Homer, but nevertheless, in order to understand Homer, we have to try to think through how this could be possible. Um, and so we can wonder do the opening lines of the poem seem to blame, praise, or say something else about Achilles? Now, again, from our own perspective uh, that is democratic or egalitarian, it might sound like insane, horrible, and senseless violence to say that countless Achaeans can be killed for Achilles' sake. But again, if you look at the poem from some kind of aristocratic frame of reference, then you would instead have to ask the question uh, like this. Is Achilles good enough to warrant this destruction? Is he divine or self-sufficient? Or does he surpass humanity or the regular run of human beings by so much that the loss of life for his sake is justified? What kind of life should an outstanding individual like he pursue? Now, again, you know, if you just say that Achilles or like this poem is horrible because you think that there's no way that one person could be better than countless people, that it's possible that that's true. But to begin at that point, you can't even begin to try to understand this concept or mode of morality. Um, this is pretty big. So, like, uh, you know, I assume that most listeners to Montana Classical College are interested in diversity. Well, if you're interested in diverse viewpoints of the world, the Iliad offers one of the most diverse viewpoints you can possibly find, which is to say that it offers a viewpoint that is almost entirely foreign 
to any viewpoint we're likely to find um, in a majority today. So that's why it's so important to read, even or especially if you reject an aristocratic morality, you really ought to try to understand exactly what it says uh, or believes as opposed to simply dismissing it. Okay, again, returning back to the beginning lines of the poem, um, one other observation we, we might make, and again, these observations are not at all exhaustive, I would suggest this or ask this, why is it important that the bodies of the men who die are eaten by birds and dogs? Um, we could say this, the bodies, if or under this understanding of them being eaten by birds and dogs, we would say that if that's the case, then the bodies are not sacred. Or necessity presses so hard on the fighters that they often cannot take the time to bury the dead. Of course, in the poem, we do see times when they do bury the dead. But if many of the bodies are eaten by birds and dogs, that means they're not always buried. To bury the dead is to give land over forever to a person who, or sorry, yeah, to a person who can't do anything. We're giving land to somebody who's dead uh, when we bury them. It is to say, we will never need this land for anything else. It will remain untouched. It is to take a stand against the imposition of necessity on human beings. Devoting time, prayer, thought, and land to the dead is a statement about one's freedom from certain constraints. Um, and to go back a step earlier even, we could say we might wonder if part of Achilles' anger could stem from his awareness that even great men can be eaten by birds and dogs. Could this be part of his anger? Okay, so we will have occasion to meditate on some of the early parts um, of the poem again in the future as we look to some of the alternative approaches to Homer. But we'll sort of move to the very end of the beginning lines and start to think about uh, why or, or think about the conflict between Apollo's priests and Agamemnon. So Agamemnon is currently in the possession of uh, the, the daughter of the priest of Apollo. The priest shows up, and he seems to offer to Agamemnon almost anything he could possibly hope for. The priest wants to give Agamemnon more treasure, and he offers to pray to Apollo to help the Achaeans destroy and crush the Trojans, as well as offering to pray for safe passage home. In other words, it seems as if the priest of Apollo offers Agamemnon everything he could possibly hope for. In response, Agamemnon threatens the priest of Apollo and tells him, quote, the staff and wreaths of the god will never save you, end quote. The priest was terrified and ran until he was a safe distance away. Now we might ask this question. Why does the priest run? Um, we could at least put it this way. He evidently does not think that Apollo will protect him at the moment. Um, or he thinks that in order to receive protection, he needs to be far enough away to pray in order to receive aid. Uh, in either case, he does not think that Apollo is watching closely enough that he will immediately save him. Or he is not sufficiently confident in his piety or justice that um, he will be protected without running to ask for help. 
and we see him ask for help, and he says, um, to be somewhat trite, I suppose, if I have ever honored you, uh, then please kill the Achaeans. Um, but this seems like a kind of vulgar or low sort of piety, i.e. a kind of back-scratching trait. Um, and I would ask you, um, is it more than that? Can you see something more deep, more sacred, or more solemn in this kind of piety than a back-scratching trait? Uh, so I'm genu genuinely open to the possibility that it is more than that. At the same time, that it's not obvious to me that it is more than that, but um, I'm I'm curious. Um, shortly after this, we can note that Apollo is called quote Smintheus, god of plague, and as far as I can tell, um, Smintheus Smintheus means mouse in Greek, which is to say, in uh, addition to sending plague infested mice. Um, Apollo is also interested in shooting arrows at the Greeks. So it's not just arrows um, dying from missiles from far away, but also uh, plague-infested rats that will be killing the Achaeans. Now, we could say this. Um, could a, or could a, an effect of a plague of mice, and especially dying from arrows at distance, could these two things have an effect on Achilles, uh, sorry, Achilles that lead him to call an assembly? We could wonder this. Could Achilles be worried that rather than, as we will learn eventually, that choosing between living a long life at home or dying a glorious death at Troy, that he will instead die a horrible death at the hands of a dirty mouse? Um, we don't, you know, I don't know. There could be epic poems that I don't know of, but it seems to me that songs are not usually sung about warriors who die from the plague. So when Achilles calls the Achaeans to assembly to question Agamemnon about what the priest of Apollo had said before, uh, could it be the case that he is to some extent worried that his choice is being taken from him? That if he doesn't put um, or set things in order himself, put things in his own hands, that he will not have a choice and that he could just die from a plague mouse just like any other soldier. Um, we learn that Achilles calls the assembly on the 10th day after Apollo has wreaked havoc for nine days. In this way, the assembly mirrors the war, which is in its ninth year, um, and Calchas predicted before, Calchas is a uh, I guess you could say prophet of the Achaeans who predicted before that the war would last 10 years. Which is to say, in some sense, could the opening assembly be a kind of microcosm or image of the war as a whole? And we'll see that this might be um, borne out insofar as the cause of the war, that is to say, Paris stealing Helen from Menelaus, is reenacted insofar as Agamemnon, after he is compelled to give away his own um, adventure wife, as one might say, Chryseus, he then takes away from Achilles, Briseus. So while between the Trojans and Achaeans, you could say it's a kind of normal war, so to speak, could it be the case that within the Achaeans, a civil war is breaking out? In other words, if Achilles 
sees the taking of Briseis in the same way that the Trojan, or sorry, that the Achaeans see the taking away of Helen. There's a way in which Achilles has just as much cause of war as the Achaeans do against the Trojans, if that makes sense. Um, okay, so Achilles, that's getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, I suppose. But Achilles calls an assembly, and during this assembly, he does actually offer himself already, before he's been dishonored, to sail home. He offers sailing home as a possibility. Um, and in the conversation at the assembly, which is ostensibly, in a certain sense, a conversation between Achilles and Agamemnon, we see a very slow buildup in the conversation. Um, to the reader, um, at least to modern readers, I suppose, maybe also to ancient readers, I'm not totally sure, but it seems pretty obvious that spurning a priest of Apollo, or this priest of Apollo, has led to doom coming from Apollo. But Achilles does not say this to begin with. He acts as if he doesn't know what the cause of this destruction is, and he goes through what we could say is the formality of having the prophet Calchas explain it. Why does Achilles do this? Why doesn't he angrily confront Agamemnon privately or angrily confront him in public? Um, it may be that Achilles, while he is genuinely interested in having Apollos uh, you know, stop shooting arrows at them and he doesn't want any more plague mice to be infesting the camp, we could say this, Achilles, at least at this point, and maybe only at this point, and this might fade away very soon, but at this point, he might be interested in preserving the chain of command or preserving the present hierarchy, seeing that stability is a hard-won good and that he would like stability to remain in the Achaean camp. And so he chooses to approach uh, Agamemnon, at least at this point, in a respectable way. Despite Achilles' wishes, though, it seems that he, if this is his goal, to preserve the chain of command, um, or to preserve the sense that somehow Agamemnon deserves to rule, Achilles undermines this very quickly or in a very serious way when the prophet Calchas asks Achilles to defend him from Agamemnon. Um, and Achilles agrees to do so. And by Achilles promising to defend Calchas, no matter what it is that he says, it's a statement by Achilles that he has superior fighting strength to Agamemnon which in a certain sense lays a claim to rule over the Achaeans. Now, we are led to another question. Why does Calchas seem to fear for his life by speaking up at this assembly? Um, put another way, um, the assembly here must not be one where he feels he can speak about the truth in public which might lead us to ask, why is it so difficult sometimes, or in some situations, to speak the truth in public? At least in this particular case, Calchas says the, that he is speaking for the army's good. It would appear that the good of the whole or the many is in the tension with the ruler, Agamemnon. Um, and we might wonder what goods is Agamemnon in a position to gain other than just continuing to enjoy the presence of the priest of Apollo's daughter, Chryses. Um, and we can also say this in a slightly more general way. At an assembly, when you speak, you are proposing action. 
action always falls on someone more than others. This leads to questions like, is this action good for me or for others? Is our good going to be genuinely common? And we might add that action is oriented towards goods that are limited in nature or towards things of which there are a limited amount. Uh, you know, you could oversimplify this and say if you are contesting your siblings for the leftovers at dinner or for the good things set before you at a feast, the feast runs out at some point. There are only so many uh, calves or cows or bulls that uh, you could eat. There's a limited amount. So too is there a limited amount of glory. Some men will be remembered more than others. If you are acting, you are contesting things which are in principle limited or of which there are not an infinite amount. You're competing for a good which is exhaustible. Now, Achilles, or sorry, Agamemnon, Agamemnon hates hearing what Calchas has to say and assumes that Calchas is going to be arguing for his own advantage. But nevertheless, he seems uh, to relent in part. Now, to take a step back, we should say that when the priest of Apollo first comes, he offers a giant ransom for his daughter, and as we pointed out earlier, he hoped or promised to pray for the success of the Achaeans in addition to their safe travel home. Now, not only do the Achaeans not get any money or any ransom, but Agamemnon is uh, forced to lose the woman that he prizes as at least equal to or better than his wife, and the Achaeans have to offer 100 bulls to Apollo. Not to mention that many Achaeans, and we might as well point out their mules and dogs, um, were killed by Apollo. Not only this, but Agamemnon's subsequent request for the prize of another Achaean hero puts him at odds with Achilles, which, as the opening lines told us, will lead to the death of countless Achaeans. Now, I think it's extremely important to point out that at the outset, Agamemnon does not say necessarily that he will take Achilles' prize. Indeed, Agamemnon points out that he alone should not go without such a prize, and he suggests that he might take the prize of Achilles or Odysseus or Ajax. And this leads us to ask this question. Could it be the case that, much as Achilles would like to keep his prize, he could not bear the possibility that Odysseus or Ajax would have their prizes stripped? And if they did, if Ajax or Odysseus had their women stripped from them, that would indicate that Achilles is somehow lower in rank than they are. Uh, at least this is possible. So Achilles might force the issue with Agamemnon. He doesn't allow Odysseus or Ajax to speak here. He forces the issue, perhaps, and I stress I'm not certain about this, but he might stress this because he couldn't stand being slighted insofar as if Agamemnon took Ajax's prize, or Odysseus's prize, that would presuppose that Achilles' prize is inferior to their prizes. Um, in other words, like uh, 
Ajax, sorry, Achilles is going to be ins incredibly insulted and dishonored if his prize is taken, but the dishonor might be greater if another hero's prize is taken. Mm -hmm. Because that would suggest that Achilles is not second or third. You know, he might even be fourth as, with respect to the Achaeans. And he wants to be the best. Okay, so we'll note very quickly that Agamemnon tries to impressively suggest um, at least twice that he himself will come to Achilles' tent to take Briseis from him. Agamemnon never does this. He sends others to do it uh, for him. Um which is something interesting to think uh, or notice. Now, Achilles, when uh, he decides to insult and become, I suppose, very angry or wrathful at Agamemnon, he begins, even in book one, to make an inquiry that he will deepen throughout the book. Um, and the question is this, why am I fighting for the Achaeans? Now, the earliest stage of this inquiry that he asks at the present moment is, in a certain sense, why am I fighting for you, Agamemnon? Why am I fighting for you? Later in the book, um, and this seems to come to a peak of inquiry in Book 9, Achilles will ask the question, why fight at all? Which is to raise the question of, what is the best human life? Does it have something to do with fighting, which is to say action? Or is there some alternative way of life? Is there some way in which Homer embodies an alternative way of life? Um, we could say that, which is somewhat impressive on Achilles' part, I think, um, that after he starts to indicate his unwillingness to fight for Agamemnon, he does start to say to Agamemnon, well, I am willing to fight on your behalf and win you more treasure than I receive. Um, but, but now things have gone too far. Achilles is tired of fighting more than Agamemnon and yet Agamemnon having more. Achilles thinks that he deserves more. And even though he suspects Agamemnon must know this, um, he sees or tries to articulate that despite the fact that he, Achilles, always carries the burden more, he doesn't receive the same amount as others. And Achilles starts to wonder what is the basis or ground of Agamemnon being the superior Achaean. Before he could bear this hierarchy, he can no longer bear it. To say a bit more, um, in the midst of the disagreement between Agamemnon and Achilles, uh, we see something very strange about the divine or about the gods, um, which is that Athena tells Achilles right before Achilles wishes to kill Agamemnon. He starts to pull out his sword because he genuinely intends to kill Agamemnon for dishonoring him, for taking away um, his prize. And Athena tells Achilles that Hera loves him and Agamemnon both alike. Hmm. So Achilles could expect that Athena is here to witness the hubris, the overweening pride of Agamemnon. And instead, Achilles hears that Hera loves he, Achilles, but also Agamemnon equally. This is surprising. 
we could ask, what does this tell us about Hera and the gods? Um, I'm not entirely certain about this, but we could at least say this. From Achilles' point of view, they do not present a coherent account of justice that is easy to obey or that is easily intelligible. And we might wish to believe in a god or gods that make it, I mean, shouldn't we wish for a god that makes things tolerably clear about who is just and who is unjust? So this could be a moment that starts to undermine Achilles' piety, something that might make him doubt things. Like, how could you love us both equally? Agamemnon's being a huge bastard. You must punish him. And instead, no punishment comes. Now, while Athena tells Achilles that he must not kill Agamemnon, she does encourage him to insult him. We won't go through, we will, will not go through all the insults here, um, but we should note at least amongst the many insults this one, that Achilles points out that Agamemnon is a coward, that he never fights, ever fights. Um, and this might tell us something about anger, which is to say that anger has a tendency to exaggerate things. Like you could imagine that you're in a fight uh, with your spouse and you say, you never do the dishes. You don't ever do the dishes. Why won't you do this? But it might be the case that really your spouse had done the dishes two weeks ago um, and had done them even before that, but that you, in this moment, your horizon is limited. And so in this way, you start to suggest that they had never done something that they've probably done many times, many times, but your anger makes you exaggerate and it limits your horizon. And you think that the limited horizon that you can see accounts for the totality of the person that you're looking at, at least while your thought is conditioned by anger. And so Achilles seems to exhibit this kind of um, limited horizon, at least so far as like, we could say that Agamemnon is not the mightiest warrior. He's not a Diomedes. He's not quite an Ajax in the story, but he is no stranger to battle. Um, we see him uh, not kill the most Trojans, but he is not uh, a weakling. You know, he's he's no Menelaus, I guess we could say. We'll talk about that more later. But um, we could say this, the core of the kernel of truth that Achilles is trying to get at is that Achilles must take on the brunt of the fighting compared to Agamemnon, at least so far as Achilles can see. And Achilles goes on to say that Agamemnon devours his people. He does not benefit them as a ruler, or as you might expect a ruler would do. Although this would force us to raise the question, the, the plan that Achilles raises with his mother that goes to Zeus, as we will see soon, it's not obvious that that helps the people. Achilles might be just as much a devourer of the Greeks or the Achaeans as Ag Agamemnon is, if not more so. All right, now, this is in no way an exhaustive account of book one, but I hope that some of the observations were helpful and I would look forward to any um, suggestions or disagreements um, in this exploratory introduction. Uh, Montana Classical College, out.